This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. But America first does not mean America alone. When the United States grows, so does the world. President Trump speaking earlier, giving a speech from Davos, mentioning trade, saying that the U.S. economic growth promoted by his policies would help the world. Let's get some analysis on that. Also, the NAFTA talks that are underway in Montreal. Michael McKee is international economics and policy editor at Bloomberg News at the NAFTA talks in Montreal. Also, our Matthew Phillips, politics editor at Bloomberg Businessweek from our Washington, D.C. Bureau. Matthew, let's start with you. President Trump speaking for about 15 minutes, seemed to stick to the script. Are stories noting that the president really seemed to try and square nationalism and globalism? What are you hearing about his speech and what he had to right. say? That's right. And that's kind of been the question, really, at the heart of his administration. He's at the Davos crowd. This is the epitome of the globalists that he ran against, you know, on a lot of these populist fronts. Uh, but this was buttoned-up Trump. You know, he was reading. Uh, he was not off script. It was essentially Trump, the salesman, inviting foreign investment. He was boasting about his tax cuts and all the profits and investment that were coming home. He talked a lot about regulatory re- relief. And these are all the things that he really wanted to be talking about anyway, not Russia, not the Mueller and the special counsel stuff. Nor even did, you know, the health care debate and immigration, for that matter, that is kind of brewing at home. So this allowed him to kind of go overseas, talk up his his uh, tax cut agenda, and they feel like they came home with a, with a pretty good win. Michael McKee, your take. Uh, I thought it was a, a fairly general speech that sort of fell back on standard cliches about the U.S. being open for business without offering a lot of specifics, nothing beyond, uh, you know, we've passed the tax reform and that's good. Uh, He talked a lot about uh, unfair trade in the world and how the U.S. can't put up with that anymore and that everybody should look at that uh, for their own countries, but didn't say what he was going to do about it. And that's really what international markets are looking for. Uh, It's particularly true in the currency markets. We've seen, obviously, the dollar falling in uh, recent weeks, uh, accelerated by Steve Mnuchin's comments the other day. And people want to know if you're going to start a trade war or not, because then uh, there's going to be less uh, U.S. exports, less need for dollars. uh, That affects the dollar. So a a lot was left unsaid by this, but it it certainly didn't offend anybody who was in the room. Mike, I was curious about, you know, how much the negotiators there in Montreal, you know, talking NAFTA, were paying attention to President Trump's speech as those talks went on and looking for, you know, what he had to say about pushback against globalization and trade. Actually, they were paying no attention at all because these are the worker bees. These are the people who have to go negotiate chapter by chapter down into the details of the NAFTA agreement. And they're really being uh, directed by the U.S. Trade Representative, Robert Lighthizer, who had his meetings over in Davos as well, but hasn't gotten here yet. He'll be checking in in Washington over the weekend and arrive on Monday. Uh, meanwhile, they'll keep trying to work away at, uh, the, at the details of the agreements and try to close as many as possible. They haven't made a lot of progress so far on the 30 chapters, and uh, there are a lot of big issues still remaining to be decided that are going to have to be pushed forward by the principals in this. And, and Michael, I've got to ask, if, you know, the, this shocking news that the president, you know, tried to fire Robert Mueller, um, uh, I wonder if that's overshadowing 
the business uh, that was meant to be done there in Davos and, and indeed the, the business about business that was meant to be done at Davos um, it, because the news is really uh, stunning. You know, it doesn't appear that it really had an effect on Davos because the people there, even the American business, were somewhat isolated from that. And, you know, unless the president were indicted, impeached, and on trial in the Senate, it probably uh, his troubles aren't going to affect the markets. So they're looking past that. Uh, and the NAFTA negotiations are not something that's going to be influenced by that. Uh, that is just ongoing work at a staff level. Where he may run into problems with the whole Mueller thing is on Capitol Hill when he tries to negotiate now the DACA deal, uh, the budget deal, uh, things like that. He's, he's going to have more reason for democratic resistance. So uh, that's where the impact would be, not in this uh, the, the ongoing world of trade. Matt, I want to get back to you. Um, you know, you listened to the speech. I mean, what else did you think was of importance in terms of what we heard from President Trump in Davos? And what do you make of kind of everybody there seemingly dropping everything and arranging their schedules around that speech? <laughs> well, he's still the big show, right? I mean, the man himself, but also he does come with, with the full weight of the U.S. economy. And we're at this very pivotal moment where there are huge questions about trade, for example, and, and regulatory uh, uh, relief and, and tax cuts. So I'm not surprised that everybody was there to see him, especially given um, you know, the way that he ran on a lot of um, anti-globalism uh, uh, um, uh, topics. You know, one thing that I would point out that he mentioned was he said the U.S. is prepared to negotiate mutually beneficial bilateral trade agreements with all countries. So the question, really, as you know, Michael is, is as a front row to the NAFTA negotiations here. What does that mean? And are, are there any other countries that are out there that, that want to do that? I mean, he is throwing a wrench into, you know, decades of kind of trade uh, policy and, and agreement with how you do these agreements. And there's a reason that you don't do these bilateral uh, deals is that you often get into this kind of zero-sum, my win is your loss kind of dynamic. So it remains to be seen whether he's going to be able to get anybody else to the table to do that. Uh, and, and indeed, uh, um, is that a real offer or is that just the notion that any deal done by anyone else is a bad one? Mike, come in on that. Well, that, that is uh, the case, I think. Um, the problem is, is the president has, A, expressed a preference for bilateral deals instead of multilateral uh, deals and has specifically talked down the Trans-Pacific Partnership and so now saying you might want to come into something like that, well, they're not going to reopen this deal for him. And uh, does he really mean it? He's never said what he doesn't like about the TPP. So uh, I, I find yeah. that uh, to be just kind of a, a talking point. But can he take it into other trade negotiations? Uh, that's hard to say. Uh, they're having a hands full with NAFTA. <laughs> to do another one would right. be, uh, wouldn't be easy. All right, guys, we got to run. Michael McKee, International Economics and Policy Editor at Bloomberg News from the NAFTA Talks in Montreal. Matthew Phillips, our Politics Editor at Bloomberg Business News. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Earlier, I talked to Bob Swan, the CFO of Intel. Intel having a fantastic day. The stock up 10% after putting up some really big numbers. Here's Bob Swan. Fundamentally, there's strength across the board. Our cloud business was up 35%. Our, our comms business was up 16 percent. 
and our enterprise business was up 11%. And as you know, enterprise has been uh, relatively slow growth or negative growth for a while, but in a, in a strong seasonal quarter, outstanding performance in enterprise. So we feel great about how we closed and we're excited about 2018. Which business is growing faster, the enterprise business or the, the server business in the, in the sort of the cloud farms of Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, Rackspace? You name it. Well, the good news is they, they're all growing strong in the fourth quarter. But again, the continuation of cloud growth in the mid-30s um, and the continuation of market share gains in the common infra- comms and infrastructure area that's been relatively slow growth in the market. But for us, it's been strong growth for us because we continue to gain share as the networks and the comms infrastructure continues to upgrade. We've been a beneficiary of that upgrade. I talk a little bit about where we sold the product, but how we sold the product is important as well. Unit volume was up 8%. ASPs were up 10%. So we're seeing customers continue to buy the high-performance products, um, driving ASPs up. And then third, we've talked about expanding our served market in the data center world. In other words, selling more than just uh, CPUs into the data center environment, but sell other adjacent products. And the adjacent product growth in the quarter was up uh, 35%. I'm interested also, you know, that I was talking to Ian King, our terrific semiconductor here at Bloomberg News. He did a radio uh, segment with me yesterday. And he was just talking about the cost of these chips. And I was surprised. I didn't, I didn't realize that the, pr- the price of the chips going into these server farms is extraordinarily high, uh, $12,000, $13,000 or so. And you're saying that that price continues to rise. Well, it's a function of performance, uh, Corey, and as we continue to deliver higher and higher performance, that makes the economics of the the service that the cloud service providers offer, it really drives their economics. So in the capabilities that we offer, really, we call it moving up the stack or buying the real high-performance chips that improve their economic uh, infrastructure. I also would have thought that as you moved into more Internet of Things business, also terrific growth there, I think 20% there as well, and, and chips that are more sort of part of everyday devices, that gross margins be coming down. We're seeing exactly the opposite, uh, 64% gross margins. Again, just a terrific number from Intel. Yeah, I mean, we've talked over the time about expanding our overall served market. And obviously, we have very high gross margins in our our historical CPU business. But as we expand to be more than just Intel inside the PC and Intel inside the data center, we also want to be Intel inside everything and have more Intel products going to each one of those verticals. IoT is a classic example of that. The business is a $3.2 billion business. It grew 20% in 2017, and it continues to grow as we proliferate the capabilities that we have, not only in the cloud, but around the edge as well. What do you know about uh, what some of your customers are doing in terms of their own design? It seems fairly amazing uh, that, that customers could think about designing their own chips, and yet you've got Apple, Facebook, Google, maybe Amazon, looking at designing their own chips in some way. And I wonder what you know about those efforts. Well, we know about the relative uh, uh, importance of chips um, in terms of their infrastructure. And we know that they absolutely want us to continue to innovate and deliver uh, more and more power, more and more performance. So 
the criticality is extremely important for, for all of our customers. What they want from us is to continue to deliver higher performance, and that's what we're focused on. And as long as we continue to do what we've been doing, we're confident that we will continue to lead the industry and deliver the products that our customers need at the performance levels that they need and ask for. Let me ask you finally. So 17 years ago, I was right down the street here at a magazine called The Industry Standard. The stock market was going crazy. Uh, the future seemed indeed quite bright for the Internet. Your stock is now at a 17 high uh, level. You had not seen since that, that era of January 2001. So I, I, I don't know. The stock price is, is mildly interesting to me, but what it portends for the future of technology is much more interesting to me. I wonder what you th if you think we're finally realizing some of those ideas of the Internet from yo 17 years ago. I mean, the transformation of the industry overall has just been fascinating. And then in terms of how we've been trying to take our capabilities and expand where it is we offer them. I mean, obviously, back in, back in 1999, Intel, was, Intel Inside was about the PC. Today, Intel Inside is about the PC. It's about the data center. It's about around the edge. It's about Intel inside autonomous vehicles. So I think the role that technology plays becomes more and more important. And therefore, the investments that we've been making is to ensure that we're well positioned to participate and lead and grow as technology plays a bigger and bigger role. That was Bob Swan, the CFO, Chief Finance Officer of Intel, whose shares are up, as I mentioned, uh, almost 10% today. Yeah, they've had a big yes. bump up today. I mean, how much did you, you guys... look. <laughs> well, how much did you guys get into the flaws and the CEO I didn't ask about the flaws. selling stock before the flaws were known? So let's talk about that for just a moment here. We've got two minutes here. And, and uh, so Intel announced uh, right after the... Partially because it wasn't in this quarter, right? So... Um, but they, uh, on the conference call last night, they didn't really have much to say, and I didn't think I was going to get much out of it from him yeah. uh, in this interview, so I just declined to ask. I don't know. Maybe I could be a bad journalist. Bark, I don't know. Bark, bark. Oh, please. Me? Just a little. You know. Oh, come on. I know. No, you in any case, for this kind of stuff. I will I'm ask anyone anything. And, and maybe, our listeners and maybe know he's that. not the person to ask. Maybe it's the CEO to ask. We'll see if it affects the results. I mean, the fact is they've got a, over 90% market share both in PCs and in the, and in right. the data center. So where are their customers going to go? I mean, you know, fundamentally, I don't know how much it's going to affect their sales uh, because there is no competition in the semiconductor Not market. Not yet. Though. And as Ian King reminded us, it takes a while for these guys. I mean, other, other tech companies are trying to develop their own chips, Apple among them. And, I, and that when, when you heard us talk about that as well. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, what's interesting about what's happening at Intel, though, is that, that suddenly they're seeing this really fantastic growth in their data center business. Uh, and, you know, the market is looking at this today and saying they think it can, can continue. I will see if it, it actually can continue. But uh, the growth rates are, are not dissimilar from what we see at Amazon Web Services, at Microsoft Azure, at, uh, we, you know, we don't see broken mm -hmm. results from Google or from uh, IBM, but, but uh, Rackspace we see as well. So really spectacular growth in that business. So maybe Intel's going to participate in that as well as, you know, getting into a lot of other things. I mean, it seemed almost silly when Brian Kersanich was talking so much about Internet of Things four or five years ago. But now we just so see these much. numbers mm -hmm. of, you know, 20% year-over-year growth, $3.5 right. billion dollars in sales and Internet of Things and buying companies to make that business grow even faster. Things becoming much more sophisticated, right? Talking to one another and being asked to do a lot more computations. Um, I am becoming much more sophisticated. Mm, that's debatable. 
Actually, it's not even worth mm, a debate of science. It's not, not true so in much. any way. <laughs> right. All right, everybody, you I'm are still a lout. <laughs> I say no more. Anyway, Intel shares definitely rallying big time, of course, their earnings after the close yesterday, but uh, investors reacting today. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, Carol Master, Corey Johnson, and we are Bloomberg Radio. And I know when that hotline bling, can only mean one thing. The problem with this great music for an intro is I never want to actually enter the guest. But Corey Mello has a man right crush on Drake. You have a crush. Why not? Drake's awesome. Uh, and no, Darren Marble knows that. He's CEO of Crowdfund X. Why does he know that? Because he knows about Drake's whiskey and an IPO. Put it all together for us, Darren. Uh, this is an amazing story. It's really exciting. I think I appreciate you guys having me back on. So Drake is launching an IPO, and he's doing it under a new securities exemption called Reg A+, which has been in effect in the United States for almost two and a half years. It allows his fans and anyone over 18 globally to legally invest in Virginia Black Whiskey if they're over 18 years old for just 100 bucks. So that, um, that means anybody and everybody. Anybody and everybody. So what, what are they getting for this 100 bucks? <laughs> they're getting a piece of the company. So they're going to own is this, actual Is this equity. as silly as owning part of Lambeau Field when you can say, hey, I'm an owner of the Packers. Go Packer Nation. Cheeseheads. The difference is that that's um, you know the, the nonprofit the, those shares have no value. This is actually fans being able to invest in the company and have shares of stock. So they're getting real equity ownership in the business, and this is part of an increasing trend we're seeing in the U.S. through Reg A Plus. About eight, uh, eight companies last year used this exemption to IPO list their shares to Nasdaq, the New York Stock Exchange. It's very real. We've been thinking and predicting that celebrities like Drake would recognize they were ideal candidates to use this exemption and here now it's happening. So what's the screening process? I think about when a stock goes public, right? There's a lot of regulations and um, regulatory steps that they have to take to make sure that there's some transparency that investors you know, truly know what they're getting into. What's the difference between, I don't know, a company, a company going public on a major exchange versus a company going public with CrowdfundX? It's almost identical. So what happens is the issuer, which is Virginia Black Whiskey, files a form with the SEC. It's called a Form 1A. And they include an overview of the business, all the important risks and disclosures, right? Uh, and well, it, not all of them. Well, pretty much everything. I mean, well, these things are right. like 300 pages one. long. Effectiveness of internal controls and accounting, is that one of them? Absolutely. No. It's it's all there. It's a streamlined S1. And uh, in this case, there is an underwriter. There's a bank we're partnered with called TriPoint Global Equities. They're the underwriter. They're the lead selling agent. And we're doing what's called a hybrid deal in that both institutional investors, uh, retail brokers, as well as everyday Americans are going to be able to invest and participate in this IPO side by side. It's really unique. Is it eventually... Okay, and so then they're listed on one of the major exchanges. Now, in this deal, they're actually going to stay private. So okay. they're going to raise up to $30 million and stay private. They may go public at a later point in time. And if you look what's happening in the liquor market, and a lot of these companies uh, get to a certain point and they're acquired. You know, George Clooney just had a billion-dollar mm -hmm. exit with Casamigos. So I think these guys are really on to something. So they can, you can buy the shares. Is it a Roach Motel? How can you get out of these shares? 
Well, in this case, because it's private, um, you know, investors are not liquid immediately. So you are investing into a private company with the hopes that those shares will increase in value, and the likely exit will be a future IPO uh, or an acquisition. Uh, in other deals where the companies do list their shares to NASDAQ, NYSC, OTC Markets Group, everyday Americans who participate in those deals uh, are liquid immediately upon IPO. How many companies have you done this with so far? We've done this with 50% of the Regulation A-plus IPOs in the U.S. Uh, in the last 30 months. We which, did a, Which is how many companies? Uh, it's about six. So okay. we helped an automotive startup, Elio Motors, raise $17 million. Uh, we participated in the Fat Brands IPO, which raised $24 million. And now Drake is out aiming to raise $30 million. And I have to quickly disclose, because we are being compensated, we're being compensated $305,000 cash to publicize uh, the Virginia Black securities, and we're proud to be a partner here. Uh, but we see a lot of deal flow, and I think this deal is really game-changing because it's going to wake up a lot of different entrepreneurs, business owners, other celebrities, and, and kind of clue them into Reg A+, which is really bringing back the small-cap IPO here in the U.S. What I'm thinking, Carol, we should do is we should offer a Corey and Carol, we call it the Coast to Coast IPO, and all of our listeners can send us $35 million dollars for the right to own a certificate for mm -hmm. our private company that they then can't sell to anybody else unless we decide to do an IPO later. Oh, you what know you what? Think? I might invest in that because I believe in you guys. <laughs> I, I appreciate that belief. It you seems bet on like, the jockey, right? Yeah. Let, well, My me, family believes in me, too, but... Yeah, they aren't giving me $35 million. <laughs> bucks. All right, so uh, that they can't then turn around to sell to anyone else. Um, how many of your IPOs did you do? Did, how, many, how many deals did you do last year? As reggae's? We did about half a dozen, and we're in half a dozen right now. Um, okay, so of the six that you did last year, how many are trading above the offering price? Uh, at this moment, only one is, and that's a so real... So five of them are below the offering price. That's correct. That's a, that's a real issue, and so I'm glad you brought that up. It's a reflection of uh, a growing industry. Uh, it's a reflection of service providers needing to consistently educate companies maybe not ready to go public, bankers needing to scrutinize valuations, uh, and lack of aftermarket support. There's also one or two regulatory issues at play here. And look, this is an industry that is very new. We're talking about a transformational change in U.S. securities laws. For the first time in 80 years, everyday Americans can invest. I believe uh, 2018 is going to be a great year for not only this deal, but for many others. And Carol, what address should listeners send their money if they want to give us money for shares of Coast to Coast? <laughs> 731 Lexington Avenue. Wait, wait, wait. We can get in trouble Make for this. Make the checks payable to no, Paul Brennan, our no, producer. No, no, Do not do that. Just listen. <laughs> That's all we want. Darren Marble, CEO at Crowdfund X. Thank you so much. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, it is. Corey Johnson here on AM 960 Studios. Carol Masser back east. Joining us from Abhay Deshpande, who's the CIO, Chief Investment Officer and Founder of Centerstone Investors. Uh, with a look at what's going on in the markets here. And Abhay, uh, terrific run in the markets going back many years. Uh, but when we look at sort of uh, the things that are driving U.S. GDP, which we got today, um, I wonder what you look uh, overseas and what you see sort of in terms of international investments in, in this, the case, bull case there. 
Sure. Um, and thanks, Corey, for having me on. Um, again, I really appreciate it. And yeah, so, I mean, um, as you pointed out, it's been a long uh, bull market um, and, a, you know, record-setting kind of uh, rally without any real correction of note for the last 18 months. And so I guess where is it coming from? I think the um, the lack of volatility in the economy, which is a welcome respite from the previous years of um, European debt crisis and the you know the Greek drama and what have you, it's kind of just been a it feels like a breath of fresh air and kind of just like some relief. Um, underlying that, though, if you go back and look at um, just earnings per share and, and economic growth, you'll see you'll see that um, you know there's been an economic recovery. It's been synchronized um, across the world from developing markets to um, even Japan and Europe, and of course the United States have been growing, and that's led to um, growing earnings per share. Um, however, there's been um, you know at Centerstone we're international investors. Uh, or sorry, I should say global investors. So we look we look at non-U.S. and U.S. markets, um, but there's been a bifurcation between the United States and non-U.S. markets. And um, of course, feel free to interrupt me at any time. But uh, just a quick, um, uh, you know, description of that kind of bifurcation. Uh, essentially, the U.S. market has uh, risen as earnings per share have reached new highs. Um, corporate, you know, corporations are doing just fine. If you look at the, and, and, and as a result, the S&P has tracked, um, you know, where earnings growth has been. So the uh, U.S. markets have done very well. Over that same 10-year period, though, the non-U.S. markets are basically flat, and that reflects earnings per share of, if you look at the EFA index, for instance, the earnings that are basically flat from 10 years ago. So you just have not had the recovery outside the U.S., and there have been a couple of reasons for that, including this, um, what was a strong dollar. Um, but also just, you know, it's just uh, one step forward, two steps back in Europe. Um, some of that has really um, begun, begun to change, though, and that's why we've been saying for the last year or so at Centerstone, it might be worthwhile for your listeners to consider investing more, um, you know, more of their portfolio outside the U.S. now. Um, you've got earnings per share that has started to recover. In fact, last year you had the first strong recovery of of, of, of many years, um, and this year analysts are expecting the EFA earnings to increase over um, over last year, maybe you know high single digit, uh, sorry high double digit uh, rate of growth. Right. So you have you know many things be, um, in your eight. favor and. It, the, the, the wind's turning into tailwind. It's just a case, too, of, I mean, if you look at kind of maybe the global economic cycle, right, Europe is behind where we are in terms of the United States when it comes to global monetary policy and a couple of other issues. You know, we're 10 years out already from the crisis, and we're starting to unwind that ease. You know, we're watching Europe to see where it goes next, Japan, too. But if you're looking for opportunity, it makes sense to kind of chase, if you will, or go after where folks are not so far into the cycle as the United States is. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always a case to be made for investing in something that hasn't gone up yet. <laughs> and um, granted, last year, um, you did have international markets go up about uh, 25%. So that's, of course, a huge uh, move. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But keep in mind that over the last 10 years, the inter until last year, the international markets outperformed the U.S. market twice in 10 years until last year. So it's, it, I think there's a lot of catching up to do, as you mentioned. And then and the, and another sort of um, element to that, as you, you, were, um, you sort of alluded to, is in the United States, the, uh, the path to interest rate increase is much clearer than it is outside. And as a result, the Federal Reserve is, you know, they've already raised rates several times. They're talking about more raises, or more increases this year, next year, potentially. And um, why that matters now 
is that for the first time in a, in a long time, the two-year Treasury note is now yielding more than the S&P 500's dividend yield, meaning that mm. you know government bonds now have a – they are an attractive uh, income, or at least it yield alternative to the U.S. stock market. Um, you know, it suggests that perhaps the U.S. market is more interest rate sensitive. So if there is a surprise to the upside as far as interest rate um, policy in the United States, uh, U.S. markets may be more vulnerable than non-U.S. markets. If you look at Europe, two-year notes are still basically flat to negative slightly. Same same in um, same in Japan. Right. So may, you know, there may be a little bit more safety overseas uh, just from relative standpoint. Hey, before we run out of time, there's a couple of names that you like outside the United States, and there's certainly not ones that Corey and I talk about on a daily basis, but maybe we should be. Uh, mention some of the names that you think, high-quality companies that are out there that you think investors maybe should uh, take a beat and maybe take a look at. Sure, yeah, Carol. I mean, there are, if you um, step back, there are uh, 7,000 companies around the world between 1 and 10 billion, 6,000 of them are domiciled or listed outside of the United States. So by being international global investors, uh, you know, we have a, a much larger universe. And as a consequence, there are lots of great businesses that are often overlooked because of the narrow focus of you know, and home bias that most people have. Uh, a good example of that is a company called Air Liquide. Um, if you were to look at it, it would be spelled air liquidy. Right. The ADRs trade here in the U.S., yep. Mm-hmm. They, yep, there are some ADRs. Um, you know, they've got a dividend yield, um, solid business. They do. Um, they basically take air and separate it into its elements like oxygen, hydrogen, and whatnot, and sell it to pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, um, soft drink companies, you know, you name it. And um, but the, in the, the end markets for that business are very stable. Right. Um, the business has very solid moat, um, and, and is very difficult for for new competitors to to gain market share against them. And it's based in France, um, but it's a it's a multinational business. That's one example. Very cool tickers or the ADR I should say is A I Q U Y. Um, Abe, thank you so much, uh, Abe Deshpande. He's founder and chief investment officer at Centerstone Investors, joining us on the phone in New York. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It is time for your Movers and Shakers, your winners and losers on this Friday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. S&P 500, a bullish day. 409 names in the index higher in today's session. 92 lower, 4 unchanged. The number one decliner, though, uh, in the S&P 500, that stock down more than 10%, Win Resorts. I was going to mention that one. Oh, all right. No, 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 please. Okay. Uh, Did you read the story in the journal? uh, Just, can I, all right, I'll I'll say some, and then you can embellish. Uh, Wynn Resorts down 10%, down more than 20 bucks at $180.29 a share. Our first time doing the show together. Corey will have all the gory details. Wynn Resorts sank after the Wall Street Journal reported that its founder, casino industry legend Steve Wynn, sexually harassed numerous women 
over many years. He's also, by the way, the finance chairman for the Republican National Committee. It says he paid, what, a $7.5 million to settle claims brought by a former manicurist at his resort who said the executive pressured her to have um, stuff with him. That's what the journal said. Stuff. Stuff. Anyway, investors getting a little bit spooked. This is a clean show. It's before, you know, 7 o'clock. Wynn Resorts is still up 7% this year, but big haircut today. Uh, indeed, and uh, my former business partner Todd Fernandez on Twitter is, had suggested recently that people uh, looking to avoid trouble in their portfolios and/or short stocks start to run some uh, screens to look for executives who've had problems of sexual harassment allegations that it could negatively mm-hmm. affect the price of their stock. Mm-hmm. He tweeted this before, and so today he tweets out, "And Steve Wynn is the first to hit the bed." Writes Todd Fernandez on Twitter. Plenty more to go, and it's not hard to find them. Just keep your creep screen on. Ew. So the creep screen. Screen. Uh, might indeed uh, let uh, some other uh, investors be worried with this. Let me mention Intel. We had, yes. uh, talked to the CFO a little bit earlier in the show. Shares of Intel up 10.6%. I'm calling that an 11% gain, closing <laughs> at $50.08. It's the highest uh, uh, price for this stock since the glory days of 2001 in the internet bubble, the last days of the internet Jeez, bubble. So, right. uh, fantastic run for Intel. Uh, we talked about it last night, right when the numbers crossed, mm-hmm. but uh, that 20% gain in data centers, which we, we pointed out to you if you're listening to the show 24 hours ago, uh, is the thing that sent the stock flying. Uh, a real strong gross margins as well. But Intel shares a, a really terrific return here, uh, despite uh, concerns that there might be uh, some nervous customers because of um, uh, the possibility of, uh, 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 or the actual, the existence, I should say, of some security flaws right. written into the chips because there's nowhere else to go. Customers are buying. All right, let's talk about uh, customers not, investors that is, not buying shares of Starbucks. Well, there's always a buyer and seller, right, in the market. But nonetheless, maybe more sellers here. In fact, an equal number. (laughs) It's funny how it works that way. Uh, Starbucks shares down more than 4%, down $2.56 a share to $57.99 a share. The number four decliner in the S&P 500. Uh, Tumbling, the coffee chain posted disappointing sales growth in all of its major regions, uh, signaling that it now has... Bigger problems than an overly saturated U.S. market. The results from the quarter that ended uh, December 31st, uh, as I mentioned, sending the stock down the most in six months. Let's see. The chief executive officer saying in an interview, quote, our holiday merchandise and limited time offers did not perform up to expectations. In the U.S., the chain also saw, quote, a little bit of softness in the afternoon, which may be a reflection of fewer people out shopping. Or maybe they just don't want coffee in the afternoon. Uh, and then, uh, what do we got? I got three weeks a little time here. Um, yes. What? I like my coffee. Um, mm. What do you got? The God of Thunder, yeah. Thor Industries, okay. not related to the God of Thunder, but Thor Industries based in Elkhart, Indiana, the maker of RVs, uh, crushed today, stock down uh, 8% on the day. A uh, big decline from a stock that had been running. Uh, this is a stock that was gone from about ninety dollars a share to one sixty before today, but shares today closing at one thirty nine eighty two uh, after announcing uh, industries uh, um, and uh, 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 sorry, announcing uh, revenues, saying that sales were up ten uh, percent in December, uh, but the growth had previously been at closer to twenty to thirty percent clip in the prior four months. Uh, their tollables business up again only 10% uh, versus a range of about 25% gains in the previous months. So things still growing, but much more slowly than they had been. Uh, revenues on a year-over-year basis up uh, 31% for the quarter ending in October. Uh, but that's, uh, again, things slowing down quite a bit for this business. And as a result, the stock down 8% on the day. Hey, checking out uh, shares of the ADRs for LVMH. Um, I'm not. 
they, okay, they were up more than 1%, 62 63 a share. LVMH getting, uh, continuing really to get a boost from a luxury rebound in China with demand for Louis Vuitton handbags and Dior perfumes racing ahead in the holiday season. Fourth quarter sales, check this out, Corey, up 11% on an organic basis, so uh, not too shabby. All right, let's get to the Volatility Index report on this Friday, especially on a day when we saw stocks uh, shooting up again. Check it out. The Volatility Index down 4% closing at 11.12 on this Friday. This is Bloomberg. Let's get Dave Wilson right now with the stock of the day. Absolutely. Eight by eight, Corey. They provide internet-based business phone networks. The name is uh, derived from a technical standard used in video conferencing. Company's been publicly traded since 1997. The ticker is EGHT. That's eight without the I. Shares had their heyday in 2000 as an internet-driven bull market peak. They plunged in the bear market that followed, and it's only this decade that they're really coming around and making up those losses. The shares rose today to their highest price since April 2000, thanks to a well-received earnings report for the fiscal third quarter. Eight and eight's results came out late yesterday. Profit and revenue beat analyst average estimates in a Bloomberg survey. The company raised its lower end of uh, the fiscal year earnings projection. And data compiled by Bloomberg shows almost every securities firm that covers eight by eight Increased share price targets. Bank of America Merrill Lynch was notable on that score. They matched the highest estimate around by lifting their projection 19% to $22. We're talking about 12 month figures there. Eight and eight, eight by eight closed today at 1775 after rising 10 and a quarter percent. And that was the stock's biggest gain in two years. Stock now up 26% this year, Dave. There you go, Carol. So building on that uh, run. All right, Dave Wilson with his stock of the day, 8 by 8 ticker is EGHT. You'll listen to Bloomberg Markets right here on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.